You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on my oath and my anchor, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had heard the gospel preached to them did not go in because their disobedience. Therefore, God again, a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke, he spoke through David, saying, as was said before, Today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them the rest, God would have not spoken later about another day. There remains a, then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, dear. You may be seated. So most of you know, like, um, I'm a lay elder here, and so I've got a job that provides for my family. I've got five kids, and life's really busy. And so if Jared wants me to preach, I need like a six-week notice. Because <laughs> I don't have the 15 hours in one week to prepare. And so uh, several weeks back, he says, hey, I want you to preach on 319. Do you want to preach? Absolutely, I want to. Well, here's your passage. That's a mouthful. Um, what am I going to do with that? I mean, the, really, the thing that I see common in there is the word rest. So I'm starting to process some things here. And every morning, I'm just going to my living room. I'm sitting on the couch, and I'm just reading and rereading and trying the best I can to sit with Jesus in this passage. Like, what are you saying here? And I'm starting to formulate some thoughts. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to start kind of making sure my thoughts are right, or on the right track at least. So I'm going to consult some other resources, some, you know, Bible experts out there. One of them is John Piper, and I'm listening to his sermon. And I kid you not, the very first thing he says was, this is probably the hardest 11 verses in the Bible. So thank you, Jared. So, <laughs> but I know what happened here. 
Guys, it was his birthday yesterday. It was his birthday week. He didn't want to mess anything. Hey, look, if the lay elder can mess this up, you guys just say, bless his heart, he tried. So here we go. We're going to run through this. But it was also like I'm sitting in the middle of this reading and just sitting with Jesus in it. And literally, guys, the Spirit says, this is exactly what I've been trying to get through your head for the past 18 months. So, I'm just going to be ta- talking to you like this is what's been my experience for the past 18 months and how this passage helps me process what the Lord is dealing with me on. Okay? So, let's start. Verse 1, the very first word is what? Therefore. And you've heard it over and over. If you see the word therefore, what are you to ask? What is it therefore? Right? So let's go back to the last three verses of chapter 3 to see where the writer, to see where the preacher in Hebrews is coming from so we can see where he's going, okay? Verse 16 of chapter 3 says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And we're going to focus a lot on that word, unbelief, this morning. But what the preacher in Hebrews is doing is he's giving, remember, he is like an Old Testament guru. And so he's constantly referring back and forth to passages, to stories from the Old Testament. And he's given his hearers a, a remembering history lesson of the people of Israel. So let's go back there with him, okay? Remember, uh, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. All right, remember that part, the story, Exodus? And they were grumbling, they were crying out to God, we got to get out of here, would you come help us, would you take, get us out of this place? And so God says, I hear my people, through Moses, I'm going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to take them to a promised land of plenty and rest. This is what I have for you. I promise you I'm going to take you there. Okay? God, through a miraculous events and signs, the Egyptians finally say, get them out of here, let's go. They leave out of Egypt, and they're not out there. I swear to you, the sun hasn't gone down, and the unbelief and the grumbling starts. To the point that they even said this, Moses, God just brought us out here to die. We were better off in Egypt as slaves. The unbelief in who God is, what he said he was going, what he had done for them in bringing them out of Egypt, and the promise, the unbelief in the promise of where he was taking them, that belief in what he had said was gone. And because of their unbelief, a generation of Israelites were not able to enter the promised land and all died before they got there. All right, so that's where the preacher from Hebrews is coming. 
So where is he going? In verse four, in chapter four, verse one, he says, "But this promise of entering God's rest still stands." All right, I know it just gave you. It's as if he's saying, "I know it just gave you the history lesson," but here's the reality: they weren't able to enter the rest, but the promise to get there is still available today. In other words, you can have the rest that they were that God had promised to them years ago. Okay, so y'all with me? Am I making sense? All right, so. What this means is I've got three questions for us to work through here around this passage. What is this rest that still stands? What in the world is God talking about here? The second question is what, what are we resting from? And the third question to answer is how in the world can I have God's rest that's promised? So let's, let's work through these one by one real quickly. What is the rest that the preacher is referring to? And this is where this passage gets difficult. Because he just ain't clear. He doesn't really tell us what rest God is referring to. And so now, we kind of have to put together some context clues to try to figure out what's he, what's he referring to. And the reality is, is that there are theologians that kind of split between two camps. And I don't think the two beliefs contradict each other, okay? I think they can kind of complement each other, but let's just briefly walk through one. One is, many people believe like this is an eternal heavenly rest. Heaven, so to speak. Hey, that's absolutely true. There will come a day, as we heard last week, that our enemies of sin, death, and Satan will be completely destroyed, and we will be with Jesus forever in eternal rest with Him, enjoying all the overflow of His love and goodness. That's coming, 100% true. But I think that if we just stop there, I think we're kind of incomplete with our understanding of where the preacher's going. Because... I don't think that God is just equally concerned about getting us to heaven. I think it's important to him. I think he wa- he's taking us home to, 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 his, to where he's at. But he's not just concerned with getting us there. He's equally concerned with our life today. March 19th, 2023. He's equally concerned with your life right now as he is about your future life with him in eternity. Here's a couple of um, quotes from some theologians that I've read. George Guthrie writes, for our, for our author, the fact that God through David, long after the desert fiasco, mentions a specific time frame for entering the rest, i.e. today, demonstrates that the rest was not limited to a physical entrance into Canaan. In other words, it wasn't limited to us physically entering the presence to into heaven uh, when we die. In fact, the author reasons God's rest must be defined as a spiritual reality in which one ceases from one's own work. German theologian Gerd Thiessen says, The rest must not be limited to a location and a point in time. God's rest must be seen as a present reality. 
So I think about the context of the, of the preacher in Hebrews. Think of what's going on. He's, this is a, more than likely a Hebrew guy who's talking to Jewish Christians in small house churches facing a lot of persecution. Rest had to be on their mind. Like rest right now. Like it's hard right now. I want some rest right now. But let's just not, let's just, let's keep going. Let's look at what, what could, all of Scripture says to us. I think Jesus demonstrated equal concern with our present life today. Not just concerned about our afterlife, but our life now. And I go to John 10.10 10 that we quoted last week where Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have what? Life and have it abundantly. Part of life is rest. God instituted that in creation, right? And it wasn't just Jesus' words that I think demonstrate his concern for our life today. His actions demonstrate he values our life today and is equally concerned with it. Think about some of these. Jesus was constantly healing physically and spiritually. I think about the guy who was lame and his buddies are bringing him to Jesus and they're in this crowded room. They can't even get to Jesus. So these guys go on the roof and dig a hole through the roof and lower him right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Hey, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up, get your bed, and walk home. And he gets up and does it. Physical healing, spiritual healing. Jesus was always casting out demons. Look, look at some of the other things he did to show concern about our life. He built just common, ordinary, loving relationships with people he encountered. He went to their dinner parties. He fed people that were hungry. He walked along, he worked alongside people. We forget Jesus swung a hammer. He celebrated all of the Jewish holidays and feasts. Like if you were going to have a party, you wanted Jesus there. He would play with the children. And he warned you not to get in the way of him playing with them. Jesus cared deeply for the present life of the people that he came in contact with on a daily basis. If he did that then, we can be assured that he's doing that now with you and I today. Equally concerned with your life. Wants you to have life, have it abundantly. Wants you to have rest. So if Jesus wants us to experience the Father's rest, now we need to ask ourselves, rest from what? Now, let's go back to what the writer, uh, the preacher in Hebrews said in 4.10. Anyone who enters God's rests, rests from their works. Even George Guthrie confirmed that in his definition and what, what the writer is talking about. God's rest must be defined as a spiritual reality in which one ceases from one's own work. 
God's present and available rest that you and I can enter into and have right now today is a rest from what I believe are four key works that you and I are working through, laboring over, that come from a root of unbelief. Remember that word at the end of 319? The children of Israel were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. And I would submit to you that every sin that you and I commit, every actual sin that we see, has its beginnings in a heart of unbelief in who God is, what He has done, and what He has promised to do. And I get that from Scripture now. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God has created everything in six days. On the seventh day, he rests. Here's Adam and Eve that get to completely enjoy all the things that God had created. This garden is yours. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. All of it is for you. I, God is saying, I am for you. So he's walking with Adam and Eve daily. They're enjoying constant fellowship and communion and the overflow of God's love. Then also... Like, they're enjoying one another. There's no coarse word shared. There's no argument going on between each other. There's no snarky comments. And they're in complete harmony with all of creation. No worried about a lion jumping out and attacking them, snake biting them, mosquitoes, all that stuff. Like, everything is perfect rest for them in the garden. And God says, everything in this garden is for you. Except that tree. Don't eat that one. Because the day you eat that one, you're going to die. So we know what happens here in the story, right? Here comes Satan in the form of a serpent, a serpent slithering up to Eve. And what does he say? Did God really tell you that you can't eat that tree? She says, yeah. But he also says, I can't touch it. Because the day that I do that, I'm going to die. And then this is where I think Satan realizes, like, it's not actionable sins that's the issue. It's the unbelief in our heart that's producing the actionable sin. Because this is what he does, all right? He doesn't grab a piece of that fruit and say, Eve, look how good this looks. And it's the best tasting fruit you will ever have. He doesn't do that. What does he say? No, God knows you're not going to die. The issue is, God knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to become like him. You're going to know good and evil, and that's not what he wants. He don't want you to be like him. Does not tempt Eve with an actionable, tangible, physical disobedience. It's a heart of unbelief that Satan goes after. What does Satan do? I mean, what does Eve do? She begins to doubt God's promise. God's goodness, God's faithfulness to her and to Adam. She believes that I can take life into my own hands. I know better. God's holding out on me. Therefore, I'm taking a bite of that fruit. Gave some to Adam. We know the rest is history. 
the world is fractured. Sin has entered. So I will submit to you that every sin that you and I commit has its root in a sin of unbelief first. And then the outside, the tangible things that you and I can see are the fruit of that unbelief. Okay? So, what unbeliefs are you and I struggling with? This is the four labors. This is the four works that you and I are wrestling with, either one at a time or all four at the same time. And if you are a OG Fellowship Paragool member, you <laughs> we got a few in the house. We call these the four Gs, okay? So let's just walk through some of these. We're going to struggle at one point or the other with the labor or the work to need to be in control. Or we're going to labor or work to gain the approval of God and of others. Or, or you can say, and, we, can, we will labor or work to seek comfort above all else. And lastly, we will labor to find value. We will work to find value in our performance. All right, here's how it looks. Let me give you some personal illustrations. Um, I have taken more personality tests than I care to admit to. <laughs> and they all come back saying the same. So I think I'll, I've learned my lesson. Just stop. It's going to say the same thing. And every one of them says, Luke, your profile, the way your mind thinks, is you are focused on pulling projects and people together to get stuff done. So I've constantly got to be doing something. I don't like sitting around. I don't like sleeping. I can be doing something rather than sleeping. And my family, Donna and the kids, um, they are affected by this positively and negatively. So here's what happened. Donna sees me just kind of busybody in myself, doing stuff, not sitting still, just filling my stuff random, not bad things, but just a lot of, a lot of random things. And Donna tells me, she says, Luke, well, let's look back up. She sees that I'm there physically, but I'm not there mentally or emotionally. I'm not present with her, present with the children. And she says, Luke, it's okay to stop, sit down, do nothing, and rest. So as I weigh her comment to me, my mind goes to Jesus and his response to Peter one time, and he says, get behind me, Satan. I got stuff I got to do. <laughs> Like, that's where my mind is like, what do you mean sit down and do nothing? I've got to be a good husband. I've got to be a loving father. I've got to work hard in the home and outside the home at my job. I need to be a friend that can be counted on. I've got all these things that I've got to do. So let's rewind just to a few weeks ago. I'm meeting with my DNA, and I'm processing feelings. The emotions I'm bringing in that morning, 
and I'm really rambling on. I don't know if I, I was coherent to them or not, but in the middle of my ramblings and what ta- expressing the things I was feeling and wrestling with, the Spirit stops me and says, Luke, you cannot be still. You cannot rest because you believe that doing stuff, performing, is how I find you valuable. It was as if he said, you believe that you must be working in order to have my love and approval. You must be doing something in order for me to find you worthy and valuable. And it was, he, he literally, he's saying to me, he said, you don't have to do anything because Jesus has done it for you. And I find you valuable because of what he's done. Not because of what you're doing. So stop working to be this good husband, to be this good father, to be a friend that can be counted on. Quit with the weight of that because you will fail at that. And that's okay because Jesus did the work for me. In that moment, I needed to believe that God is gracious so that I don't have to prove myself to him. I'm accepted by God, not because, and I'm valued by God and worthy to God, not because of what I can do, but because of everything Jesus has done for me. So I can stop performing. I can quit with the labor of trying to prove myself, and I can rest in the grace of God. Here's another one. Maybe you, maybe you find yourself laboring with the need to control your life or control the circumstances you're in. Do you find yourself impatient? Do you find yourself constantly worrying? These are signs that we're trying to, these are, these are symptoms that we're trying to control our life. And I don't have this illustration in my notes because this happened last night. Y'all know, like with my five kids, the quietest room in my house is outside in my shop. And so about 8 o'clock last night, I go out there, and I'm just kind of touching up the sermon a little bit, uh, trying to overwork, overperform, overprepare. Tweaking a few things, and about that time, here comes one of the kids. Okay, one interruption, I can deal with that. About three minutes later, here's the other one. Now i got two kids in here. They leave, and here comes a third kid. And I'm like, what is going on? Don't they know i got important stuff to do tomorrow? What's my wife thinking? She knows what I'm at. I told her what I was going to go do. Why is she letting them come out here? Interrupt me. (laughs) And this impatience has risen in me. And I'm short with them. I'm not listening to what they're trying to tell. Guys, my my seven-year-old said, can you come say my prayers? (laughs) And I was like, no. (laughs) Like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) How awful am I? (laughs) I'll do that later, baby. Like, that legit happened last night. And what was going on is I felt this need to control. 
what this morning would look like, how well I would preach this sermon, how well you would receive it, trying to control your responses to my sermon. I'm trying to be the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to be God in that moment. And what I and then here I am. Now I get to this past this part of the sermon. Now that all the kids finally left, I'm finally getting to that part. And it's like the Spirit said, you're doing exactly what you need to hear tomorrow. You're not listening to the own words I've put in you. What you need to hear is stop trying to be in control. You need to hear that I, God, am great. So therefore, you don't have to be in control. I got this under control. And where my mind goes and where is like in the most horrific event in human history, the death of Jesus, his son, God was orchestrating all of that for your and I's salvation. He dies. Three days later, what happens? When chaos had ensued, the all hope was lost. The disciples go back to fishing. They're like, well, there goes our three years. I guess we're going to go back to fishing. What happens? God raises him from the grave. If in the most chaotic event in history, God can be totally in control. He can be in control about me standing up here this morning. And about any situation in life that any of us finds ourselves in. God is great. Therefore, you do not have to be in control. Maybe struggling with performance or control like I've been doing is not what the unbelief you have. Maybe you find yourself working and laboring for the approval of others, for the approval of God. It'll look like this. Here's some symptoms. Do you find yourself avoiding conflict with others? Do you find yourself easily offended by people? Are you inauthentic with God, with others, because you don't want people to know the real you? You don't want people to know your, your failures, your sins? If so, the truth that we need to hear is that because God is glorious and fully approves of you as his son or daughter because of what Jesus has done for you, you do not have to fear. You do not have to work and labor at gaining the approval of others and of God. You have God's full approval because of Jesus. We learned last week that the reality, you remember Jared sharing about the Corinthian church and how screwed up they were? And yet, in the eyes of God, they were saints. You do not have to be inauthentic with Him or with anyone else. You do not have to fear conflict with Him or with anyone else. You stand fully approved before God the Father, because He is gracious through His Son, Jesus. And lastly, maybe you labor to gain comfort. And this is a comfort that's not coming from Jesus, but rather from the gifts that He gives. 
Do you find yourself running to comfort-related items? Or maybe even comfort-related sins? Maybe an overindulgence in social media? An overindulgence in Netflix? An overindulgence in food? Maybe you choose more drastically devastating choices, addictions, and running to addiction, or promiscuity. Some of the things that we run to aren't bad in and of themselves, and some of them are bad in and of themselves. But at either, either choice, either place we run, the issue is not running to the gifts God gives us for comfort. The issue is the unbelief that God is the source of all comfort. The issue is the unbelief that God is good, so you don't have to look anywhere else to find comfort and satisfaction. Psalm 16.4 says, At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you need to believe that God is good so you can find all your satisfaction and comfort in Him? So lastly, let's answer this last question. How can you have God's rest? If you're like me, you see yourself with so much unbelief. To the point where you're not even praying for your child when you tuck her in because you believe you've got to be in control. If you're like me, how in the world Do I enter into this rest? It's for today. God's promise still stands that we read. So I'll just submit two things to do. These are action items that you and I can take in our unbelief. One, just examine which unbelief you struggle with. In this present reality, March 19th, 2023, what unbelief are you struggling with? Ask the Spirit that. Which one? Am I not believing you are good? Therefore, I don't have to find comfort in the things that I'm running to. Do I not believe that you are gracious? So I don't have to seek approval from other people. I have your full approval. Are you not believing that God is great? Because you're trying to control all the circumstances of your life and it's worrying you to death? Or are you not believing that God is gracious and glorious, but you don't have to prove to him your value. He finds you valuable because of Jesus. Ask the Spirit, which one are you not believing? And God's not afraid of that question. He's not afraid of your unbelief. He's not put off by your unbelief. I think of the man in Mark 9 who takes his lame son to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, I know you can heal him. I believe. Help my unbelief. Like, I believe you here. I've heard about you. I've seen you do good things. But I have so much unbelief still here. So help me. And you know what you'll be met with? This has been my life verse 
for the past 18 months. Jesus, in Matthew 11, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What unbelief are you struggling with? Jesus invites you to come to him with that. And when you come to Jesus with that, you will not get this. I tried to tell you. How many times have we said that to our kids? <laughs> I've tried to tell you if you just listen to me. Nope. You won't get this. Nope. One too many times you're going to, have to learn on your own. You know what you'll get? Because of Jesus' own words that he is gentle and lowly in heart, you will not get arms crossed. No. You will get arms open with him, bring, welcoming you in. Come on. Come on. I know you have unbelief. Come on. Bring it to me. I, 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 I can carry this. My yoke is easy. My bird's light. I can carry yours. Bring it to me. I got it. You, are, you will not be met with shame. You will not be met with harsh words. You will not be met by Jesus with disappointment. You'll be met with him with love and grace and gentleness. Because that's the way he is towards us. That's the most amazing thing about Jesus. You are the God and creator of the world. And you are not frustrated by my unbelief. You are not mad at me because I don't believe you. You welcome my unbelief. You're not afraid of it. You want to carry my unbelief. Oh, man. That's freedom. That's rest. If I can take all of my heavy unbelief and place it onto him so that I can receive that rest, that's good news. That's real good news. So come to Jesus. All who are weary and heavy laden with unbelief, you will be met with a gentle Savior.